welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Of course, you know we're going through uh, Luke chapter 21, which is uh, the most detailed teaching Jesus ever gave about what the Bible calls the last days. Now, Christians use the phrase last days a lot, and I don't think uh, many fully understand it. Some think the last days pertains to, pertains to the time of the very end of, of days, the tribulation time, or the time of the very wrapping up of history. But biblically, the scripture tells us we are in the last days right now. Hebrews chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, and other places tell us that the last days began at the ascension of Jesus and the beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit came. And uh, it continues to this, this day, and it will go all the, way, all the way through until he visibly returns to uh, deal with human history at the very end of time. And so... We're in the last days. They are these days. But Jesus talked about the fact that certain dimensions will occur like birth pains and they will increase in intensity and frequency as the last days progress. And this is now he's come to this point in the teaching on the Mount of Olives at the end of his teaching ministry as he approaches the last few days of his life and his disciples have asked him, what are the signs of your coming? What is the sign? And Jesus gave them six signs. As I look at this passage in verse, uh, in verse uh, beginning in verse eight and uh, going all the way through uh, the passage, we've covered two so far. He told them that in the last days there will be increasing dimensions of deception, spiritual deception, and deceivers being uh, committed to lead people astray, verse 8. And he says, see that you are not, not led astray, for many will come falsely in my name. And we also discovered last time that there is going to be unusual human and natural upheaval. And Jesus covered that in verses 9 through 11, talking about nation rising against nation, kingdoms rising against one another, great events in human conflict, but also in the natural world. And uh, we talked about the earthquakes that he predicted and the pandemics and other things. Now we come to the third sign, and it's in verses uh, 10, pardon me, verse 12, all the way through verse 19. And Jesus shifts and he talks about persecution. Verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. That's the dominant promise in all of this. And so we talk about persecution of the believers, the followers of Jesus. When we do in our age, the question comes to the mind of the contemporary American Christian, is persecution coming to the American church? I would answer, of course it is. Why would we be any different than biblical believers throughout the generations and in many parts of the world? It certainly should come. Because it always comes, Jesus says, to those who follow him with devotion. So, of course, it's coming. Why should we be any different? Now, how do we prepare our hearts for that? Well, Jesus here in this passage is going to teach us, and he's taught every church 
uh, that's ever read these words since they've been placed in Scripture, this. Persecution is part of the life of Christ's church in any age. It will increase toward the end of the age, and then he's going to return and begin a new age. You want this teaching in a, in a nutshell? That's what it is. That's what he teaches in this entire passage. So persecution is coming. It is coming to any biblically committed man or woman in a darkening, Christ-hating generation. question might then come to your mind, well, how do I get ready? How can I be prepared? And the answer is, you're already prepared. You already know what it means to be ready, and you already know what it's going to be like when it gets here. How? Because of this passage and many others that I'm going to touch on that reflect on the persecution of the believer. So you're going to be prepared by the end of this message for what may come. We're going to do three things today as we open this passage. We're going to take a look at the text and spend the majority of our time opening up four promises Jesus made to the disciples that day that, as I've said before, are over time to our day about persecution when it comes to the Christian. Four promises. After taking a look at the text, we'll, pre- we'll take a brief look at our times just from an analysis and dealing with the question, what is persecution like in the church today worldwide and how could it affect this country? We won't have enough time, but we'll spend a few moments on that. We'll take a look at the text primarily, then gaze at our times and apply the text in that way. And then finally, we're going to take a look at our hearts and we're going to take a look at what the scripture says about how to prepare your heart as a believer for the persecution that will come to your life if you're following Christ. Didn't the Bible say all those who desire to live godly in Christ might on occasion, if they're super supremely spiritual, suffer persecution? What Bible are you reading? The reverse standard perversion? I don't know. No, that might be a hopeful translation for you. All those who desire to live godly in Christ, can you complete it, will, some of you with me, will suffer persecution. It is an echo effect of a godly life in a God-denying world. So we're all going to walk through it, but Jesus here indicates that it is going to intensify toward the times of the end. That's important. So there we go. Let's first of all take a look at the text. Now this is an interesting passage. The word will, structured around a statement of promise by Jesus, occurs nine times in these verses. So this is a a passage of certainty. Jesus is predicting certain things that will happen, not only to those disciples as the apostles, but as I've said, will move throughout the experience of believers until the time of the end. So among those nine will statements, I have, div- I have uh, put into words four promises that Jesus seems to make here about believers and persecution from the time of the apostles until the time of the end. Here they are, and this is how I'm going to teach you the text. Four promises he makes. Number one, from the beginning, God's people are going to be persecuted. From the beginning, God's people are going to be persecuted. This is verse 12. Look at it with me. Jesus said to them, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. And then he goes on into detail about what that will be like. Notice he says, before all this, what's he talking about? Remember this, as I understand it, you may differ. 
And I've told you about the differing interpretations, but my interpretation of this passage and these promises is that this is a time-spanning text. The great event Jesus is teaching about toward the end is is in verse 27, and that is his visible return. When, When you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, that's when he's going to come back visibly and deal with human life and sin on the planet. But he says, before all that, a series of events and experiences will become true. And so he, he goes back and he says, before all this, what's he's referring to? To what he immediately said that we talked about last week. Things that I said will happen in escalating intensity and frequency all the way until his final return. Wars, tumults, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, human spiritual deception, all of that is going to be growing by magnitudes uh, until his return. You see them grow in magnitudes? You're suffering, yes, but he says, lift up your heads for your redemption is drawing nigh. These things are going to grow in intensity. Now, as you see this happening, something is going to happen very early in the life of the church that will track with the church all the way through this. And that is persecution. Before all this, from the very beginning, if you will, verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. It began with the apostles. It has gone all the way through the life of the biblical church, and it will culminate in the lives, and and I'm going to talk about this as verses 17 through 19, the believers who are alive during the tribulation period yet to come at its highest possible level. Persecution will be at a level unimaginable in the years of the tribulation at the hands of the Antichrist. And I believe he refers to that here too. I'll show you why I believe that. So you can see, just like the other signs, increasing in intensity and and, and frequency, if you will, until he visibly returns. But from the very beginning, God's church will be persecuted. It wouldn't take long. And he says, they will lay their hands on you. What is persecution? It is somebody who is against your biblical faith, taking control of some dimension of your life against your will. They're coming at you. They're coming to take over control. They're going to lay their hands on you. It was a word for putting people into prison and that's exactly what happened as we will see now what does the word persecute mean it's an interesting word it's a frightening word in the greek language dioko it came from a a hunting word to pursue prey does that make you uncomfortable made me uncomfortable when i studied it it meant to pursue prey to hunt someone down to follow them, to press hard after them. This is from the Greek lexicon. To pursue as one does a fleeing enemy. It could be translated to chase, to harass, to vex, to pressure. And it was also used in ancient Greek to talk about chasing down a criminal. So you got the whole spectrum. Persecution could mean chasing down a criminal to take them to death, to kill them, to take them out as prey, all the way back to the, to the softer dimensions of vexing them, bringing pressure on them. That's relational, that's social, that's verbal, that's situational. It, it covers a spectrum, and I'm grateful that the word does because that's what persecution does. It covers a spectrum. The experts tell us there are, there are degrees of persecution that the church has and will experience. The experts call soft persecution, persecution that comes when a godless society begins to vex and trouble and oppose and afflict you in your relational and and economic life. 
So if you take a look at it as, as a gradient from, from, from lesser to greater, it would start in the soft persecution arena. When you begin to suffer vexation, opposition, and trouble from a God-hating society in your social and economic world, your relational life, it moves through all the gradients to what they call hard persecution. And I'm going to share stats with you today about where hard persecution is operating in the world and where other dimensions are operating. Hard persecution takes the word dioko all the way to its other definition, and that is the, it is civil punishment leading to physical suffering and physical death. So you see, the experts talk about a gradient, soft persecution from social to, to hard persecution, and that's to physical death. The word covers every dimension. Jesus said, this is going to happen to you if you follow me. He said to the apostles, it's going to start happening with you, beginning as my church begins under your hands. Before all these other things increase in magnitude, persecution will start very, very early. He says they will take you before their synagogues in verse 12, and they will bring you to prisons, and then you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And that, of course, talks about how persecution would begin to progress as the church began. And did that happen? Of course it did. Now, when did the church officially begin? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon those in Jerusalem who heard the preaching of the gospel. Thousands came to Christ. A mighty, mighty work of God broke out. The church began. But, and that was in Acts chapter 2. Did you know it only took two short chapters for persecution to fall? Two chapters. It was a wonderful honeymoon that didn't last long. And we know in Acts chapter 4 that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, all the Jewish leaders, came up to Peter and John after they healed a man crippled at the gate there at the temple. And in response to their preaching and many coming to Christ, they were greatly disturbed, the scripture says, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them. How remarkable. Jesus said, it's going to come quick. They're going to lay hands on you, and they put them in jail. How remarkable, just as Jesus predicted until the next day, for it was already evening. They, they, that didn't, you know, I'm sure that Peter and John were preaching that afternoon, seeing great results. Then all of a sudden, they're getting manhandled. They're in handcuffs. They're, in some, they're, they're taken to jail, and I'm sure as the jail door slammed, they both looked at each other, and they said, well, that didn't take long. <laughs> because they were already prepared. You see, that's why this passage is here. This passage is here not to darken your sense of spiritual safety as a believer. It's to prepare you for Jesus. what Jesus said comes when you carry his truth. And they were prepared. Slam! Now that didn't take long. And so they persevered through it by faith. The whole church gathered, had a magnificent prayer meeting. God delivered from them there from their first imprisonment. And the Bible says the Spirit of God built and grew the church, and they were deeply encouraged in Christ. So things went on. And that became the story of the apostles as you read the book of Acts and the story of other disciples whose names are long gone as you read the book of Acts. What happened? They got to a city, they preached the gospel and made reservations in jail. That's the way it worked. They were taken before the synagogues. They were tried before the synagogues. They were beaten before the synagogues, just like Jesus said. So Jewish persecution became the great uh, attack point against the church until A.D. 70, when the Jewish nation as a whole began to disintegrate after Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was taken down one stone upon another, as you know. 
But then history ramped up because now by then Christianity had had moved as Jesus had told them to take it. Don't just take it to Jerusalem and Judea, but to the remotest parts of the earth. You take it out to the non-believing world. God had called a man named Paul, said you're taking this message to the non-Jewish world, and it exploded around Rome. And uh, then Roman persecution erupted in response to that. The Romans came to a point where Christians were civil enemies. Tacitus, the great Roman historian, uh, simply said, Christians today are a class hated, end quote. So that's where things got pretty quickly. You know a little bit about the persecution story. Some of you remember that in AD 64, a madman named Nero was involved in the burning of Rome. You remember that story. There was a tremendous amount of, of controversy over the nature of why Rome burned, and historians seem to gather around the belief that Nero needed a convenient political enemy for this disastrous political development, and he chose a group of people already hated by the majority of society, the Christians, and he blamed it upon them. And the, the first great official persecution against Christians started in A.D. 64. It was savage from the beginning because Nero was savage in his nature. Nature. Christians are arrested, cruelly tortured. You know, you've heard stories that they were affixed to crosses or posts in Nero's gardens, covered with tar and lit on fire to light his parties. That's historically very accurate. That rage spread from the city of Rome and it began to move out into the provinces of Rome. And this is why people like Peter and Paul were martyred under the persecution in the time of Nero. This is why Paul's words in 2 Timothy are so darkened with with suffering because he was there under the hand of Nero. And so persecution became official in that dimension and attacks on Christians began to spread and move. Then it got amplified by another wicked emperor, Domitian, in the 80s and the 90s. And of course, we know somebody who tasted the sword of that uh, persecution wave, the wonderful and blessed Apostle John who because of his celebrity was not killed outright, but was boiled in oil, he survived that. How would you like that on your resume? You're you're boiled in oil and survive. Then he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, as we know, and received revelation. So no other religion in history, as has been noted by one commentator, had this beginning and has this characteristic. It is a persecuted faith. So did the promise of Jesus come to pass? Yes, it did. From the very beginning, my people, you will be persecuted. That was the first promise he made of the four. Here's the second. This persecution will be its own opportunity, however, for powerful witness. Go back to our text. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you, verse 12, and persecute you. But then go to the next verse. This will be... Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. What an incredible statement. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it beforehand, therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, some people misunderstand that verse. Hold on. It doesn't mean you win every argument and you'll be set free. We know that that's not true. In fact, most of the time it changed nothing and death and persecution and suffering followed. But we're going to hear in a moment about the wisdom of God being preached even as the church suffers. This is a powerful thing. 
Jesus said, not only am I predicting this, but I'm so in control of it, beloved, that it's actually given me an opportunity for me to bring my gospel out through you in a powerful way. And I will be with you. Look at that. I'll be with you. The Holy Spirit, it's also described in Mark 13, is identified as the one who's going to be present with us and he'll give us words of wisdom. There's so much here. You'll not be alone when you're persecuted. And it will not be a failure of the church. Some people think that the church has to to get into some kind of dialed-in relationship with a God-hating society to make sure we're always on good terms with a godless world. That's an impossibility. No, we're going to be opposed. We're going to be in situations where we are in conflict biblically with a lost culture, and they're going to make us pay for it. But even in that, Christ in his sovereignty will turn it into witness. He says this persecution will be its own opportunity for powerful witness. You know, these days, in our American culture, uniquely in the last 200 years, but really the last 100 years, we have redesigned Christianity into what many people call an attractional model. Because our society was was so inured to Christianity, having had tasted it culturally so long, that we needed to retool Christianity to make it attractive to the needs or the concerns or the expectations of the American secular mind. We've become attractional in order to draw people. Did you know that that essence of ministry is quite the exception in world history? Because you see, biblical biblical Christianity, when it's really lived out in most cultures, in most times, in most history in the world, has been so exceptional and so oppositional that it's attracted attention. It's attracted attention because a darkening culture, whether here overseas or in any other time, wants to move against it. What am I trying to say? Historically, biblical Christianity has been so opposed that it, create, that it attracts its own attention. And it creates conversation that often leads to confrontation. I'll put it another way. By the time Paul got through about half of his preaching years in ministry, and he finally got to Rome for his first imprisonment, Christianity had worn off being a novelty, and it wasn't something that he had to gain a hearing for by going to the synagogues. And in, in the book of Acts, it tells us when they heard he was in town in Rome, they came to him. The Jews came to him because they were already aware of this message. We've heard of this message. So people were coming because Christianity was becoming controversial. Biblical Christianity in any darkened culture is always controversial, and it creates its own hearing. Sometimes living out your faith creates persecution. What I'm trying to say is persecution, Jesus says, is its own opportunity. Hope that makes sense. That's been true over history. Believers who are following Christ and living out biblical values, who have an intimate relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, are different And as society darkens, their difference is more highlighted. Maybe you're already experiencing this as our society darkens, and you're experiencing maybe more conflict over your faith, but you know in your heart you're not any more vocal about your faith than you used to be. What's happening? As darkness deepens, light becomes more obvious. 
and it becomes something that people move toward, either if they're moved by the Spirit out of deep curiosity and they, they want to know Christ, or they're moved uh, by the spirit of their rebellion and they want to extinguish that light. In the Boxer Rebellion in China over 100 years ago, in the late uh, 1800s, I believe, early 1900s, there was a horrible civil unrest. It was a terrible civil war, and, and Christians were caught in the middle of it. And for some reason, the government targeted Christians who had come to Christ in, in, through the ministry of missionaries in the late 1800s, and they were a population in China, and everybody was hiding from the sword. And, and yet all they, the, the, in the Boxer Rebellion, the Chinese authorities knew how to find the Christians. All they did was they brought everybody in the village out and put them in the middle of the square. They lined them up single file. Then they walked down the line, and, the only, and every person who had a look of peace on their face was pulled out of line, asked if they indeed professed Christ, they professed Christ and were executed. Why? Because in that darkened society that was filled with rage and anger and fear from every quarter, that whole society was against itself. Just secularly, in the midst of that was a small population of people who were under the rule of another king and who had the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and they were literally recognizable by their spirit. Oh, walking with Jesus will be its own opportunity to testify. Soon it will be even clearer in our culture. He says, you walk with me and they will persecute you. But as that happens, verse 13, this in itself will be your opportunity to bear witness and I'll be with you and I'll give you wisdom. He says, don't sit there and prepare ahead of time. It's interesting in, in, in verse uh, 14, settle it therefore in your minds. Make your decision way ahead of time. Prepare for this. Like I said, you're going to be ready by the time this message is over. He says, know it's coming and know ahead of time. You don't have to prepare elaborate arguments. Meditate beforehand. The Greek there is to put together an argument in a courtroom, to put together a reasoned argument. It's interesting. As Christians today, as our society becomes more secularized, post-Christian as they now call it, where our whole society doesn't even have a place on the whiteboard of its mind to understand what Christianity is. Which, in other words, we've joined paganism is what we've done, finally. And that's the way a lot of the world is. They don't have a place on their whiteboard to understand Christianity at all. We, we feel compelled to come up and prepare with apologetic arguments and to study a worldview so that we can answer it accurately and we can make an argument for the hope that's within us. And that is a biblical responsibility. But in, in the moment of persecution, when somebody is opposing your faith, Jesus is here saying that there's going to be something more important than apologetic arguments and worldview reasoning. I want you to just be able to take a stand for the gospel for which you're suffering. They're not beating you up because of your worldview. Your worldview comes from your gospel. What's the great issue? He says in verse, uh, in verse 12, they're going to be persecuting you. Look at the last phrase. This is all going to happen for my namesake. Why is the church everywhere persecuted? Why is it going to be persecuted in the future? Not because it has a certain worldview, not because it has a certain political bent, not because it has a certain opinion on issues. Th those, are, those are factors of human relations. That's not why she should be persecuted. The bride of Christ is going to be persecuted because she's living for the name of Jesus. And when you live for Jesus, as Dr. Lenski, the Bible commentator says, you rejoice and suffer about all that comes with the name. Now, what comes with the name? 
Well, Jesus told us in the Gospels. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he shall convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you know that when you claim the gospel and you name Jesus and you follow him as your Lord and Savior and somebody presses you about what you really believe about God and Jesus, those are the three things that are going to come out of your mouth because that's what the name of Jesus means. It means that men and women have sin. That's why the name of Jesus is so hated in any society because Jesus is a Savior. What does a Savior imply? You need one. You're not a superman, a superwoman. You're not an evolving to perfection being. You're not someone who's innately good and only going to get better. You're not someone like that. You are a sinner man, a sinner woman, and the name of Jesus declares it. So he, he comes with the acknowledgement of sin. But then there's also the word righteousness. What's that? Here's the miracle. With Jesus comes this great story that God, though in his great holiness, should judge you forever. He sent his son to die in your place so that because of Christ's payment for your sin, you can actually taste righteousness and you can become born again and you can be at peace with God. That's the marvel of the gospel. That comes with the name of Jesus. Jesus should not only come with judgment, he should come to convict of, we should convict people of sin, but then tell them the wonderful news of righteousness. That comes with Jesus. But the Bible tells us the darkened heart rejects that. Most of the time. So what happens if you reject that? There's the third word. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and convict men of sin, righteousness. What was the third word? Judgment. And that's the only possible word that comes to a responsible individual who knows their sin has been revealed, sees a Savior in, in all that he provides, and rejects it completely and totally. What is due to that person Judgment from a perfect, holy, wise, just God. You don't want to, he says, you're going to be bearing my name. Believers, until I return visibly, are going to be bearing my name. What comes of my name? Those three things. That's why persecution falls, you see. I look at this text and I think he's basically saying, listen, my Holy Spirit is going to come and you might run a lot of words through your minds and reasonings and defenses and everything else. But verse 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, what does that mean? I believe he's talking about the gospel and all of its greatness and power, because that's what that's what saves he says, I'm going to give you the ability to talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment in the darkest hour, because that is the true wisdom. How do we know this? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. Look at verse 18. Paul talks about wisdom in this passage. He talks about the wisdom that the world loves, and he talks about the true wisdom that God gives. And he contrasts the two. If you try and argue with the world to satisfy its own wisdom, you will lose every Christian argument, because the world's wisdom is anti-Christian. He says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Look what God does with human wisdom. How does he do it? Through the gospel. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
There's two dimensions of wisdom. They're the world's, it's the world's wisdom based on a human view of man and a rejection of God. And then there's God's delivered wisdom, which the Bible says is in Christ Jesus. It's the wisdom of the gospel. The world thinks that's folly, verse 18, but to those who are wanting to be saved, oh, it's a different story. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice he said, I will give you a mind and a word of wisdom to stand when you are persecuted and you will have an opportunity to testify of me. What is the wisdom of God? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's what Jesus has done. It's who he is. That's what you're going to be preaching and speaking about when you're persecuted. Don't get into worldview tactics, political entities, or any of that stuff. You say, listen, I love Jesus. I saw my sin, and I sought my Savior. That's why I'm here today, and I urge you to do the very same thing. When you do that, you're preaching the wisdom of the cross. And most people, verse 25, will look at you as a fool. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. They look at you as a weak person. But oh, those who are being called, those that want to know Jesus, they're going to hear a different wisdom, and you will bear a witness. From the very beginning, Jesus promised God's people will be persecuted, but he said this persecution will be its own opportunity for powerful witness. What do I say? You already know. What will I say? You already know. And no man can contradict it, Jesus said here in, 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 in Luke 21. Why? Because you can't contradict gospel. The gospel is what it is. I don't care what a society says about it. I don't care what an historian says about it. I don't care what some sociologist says about it. I don't care what anybody says about it. You can disagree with it, but the gospel is what it is. And we'll be bearing it. Here's the third promise. Go back to your text, Luke 21. Third thing you promised is that this persecution will deepen intensity in intensity until the very end of the age. It will deepen in intensity until the very end of the age, verses 16 and 17. You will be delivered up even by parents, even by. There's, there's the dimension of an escalation here. It will get to an unimaginable point where parents and brothers and relatives and friends will be delivering people up. That means sending you to jail or to death. That's virtually unimaginable. That's when all human relationships relationships are frayed and broken and darkened so much by sin that that's going to happen to believers. It seems to me, to me here he's speaking in escalated terms, and some of you will be put to death, and then verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's going to get to that point. Do you see the escalation? I believe it's spanning time here. This persecution will eventually grow to a point where even the closest human relationships will be separated by the gospel. Parents, brothers, children, family members delivered to death by family members. That's incredible. Now, Jesus, I believe here, is mixing what's known as near-term and far-term prophecy. 
He spoke about it as something that would begin in their experience, but I believe he's speaking to them in the later part of the verses, in a sense, as representative of believers yet to come. You see, there will only be one time, I believe biblically, where the world will have descended where it has such a spirit as Jesus describes in verses 16 and 17. It could happen on occasion, but I believe it's going to be so intense. There's only one time where verse 17 is going to be true, where you will be hated by all. And that is the time of the terrible tribulation, particularly the last part of it. Now remember Luke 21 is a description in a, uh, in a less detailed way of the same sermon Jesus gave in Matthew 24. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives an interesting insight in verse 9. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. How is that possible? That wasn't happening in the time of the apostles. This is a worldwide congealed hatred and commitment against the person of Jesus Christ. When's that going to happen? The Bible says it'll happen only at one terrible time, known as the last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. You may disagree. I'm just studying my Bible, and I'm comparing text to text. You should do the same. And I looked at that, and I realized, listen, Revelation chapter 13 in very clear terminology, talks about what that time will be like. The Antichrist will rise in power and dominion over the entire world. Revelation chapter 13 teaches us this. He'll be called the beast. He's called the beast in Scripture at the very least. And the beast was given a mouth, this is Revelation 13, 5, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Against who? Against God and his Christ. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. You remember that? His name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. I think that's a light on verse chapter 21, verse 17. There will come a time when, yes, all nations... And all peoples will be under such supernatural satanic deception through one human being that they will count it a privilege and a patriotic moment to, to exterminate your belief in the name. There's only one time when that's coming. Only one time when one world ruler will be allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And look at this, an authority was given to him, to this beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. That's where Jesus, I think, says all nations will hate the name. That's why I think this particular taste of persecution will be something that only those who are alive in the tribulation will experience. As I've taught you, I believe he's coming for his church. That's us. He will take us out of that terrible time. But others will come to Christ in the time of the tribulation and they will suffer deeply for it because by then satanic deception will have soaked around the entire world and all who dwell on earth will worship the beast it says verse 8 everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain who's that those that come to christ the world will be two groups of people the vast majority god-hating deceived satanically dominated people and then a small but growing and powerful group who come to jesus christ and that group will grow and grow in number here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, verse 10. 
So what's going to happen in the future? This is my opinion as a Bible teacher. There's only one time in history when all the nations will together be soaked in hatred for the name of God. And it's coming at the time of the great tribulation. Now you say, wow, it's going to be horrible to be a Christian. Yes, but it won't last long. You'll be, you'll, you'll come to Christ and then you'll probably go and see Jesus pretty quickly. Now, the Bible tells us also in the book of Revelation after that, before that terrible chapter in chapter 13, if you go back to chapter 7, John has given a vision of a great multitude from every nation. This is Revelation 7, 9. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Look at that. Every nation is going to be soaked in hatred against God and his people, but God is also going to draw people with their names written in the Lamb's book of life from every nation in the tribulation. I believe the greatest revival, the greatest coming to Christ will happen in world history, not in our age, but during the time of the tribulation when judgment is falling and people are turning and he's going to bring the biggest harvest of history in. They'll be, they'll be born again in the morning and maybe their life taken by night. But every nation is going to see people come from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they'll be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a wonderful vision. And one of the elders who was standing by John in verse 13 says, do you know who these are? And John in verse 14 says, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What's he talking about? There is going to come a time when every nation will hate the name of Jesus and anybody that bears it. But God's still a saving God and many will come to him. And when they come to him, their life might be short, but they'll be right into the presence of God and he'll tell them to rest and wait a little longer until my purposes are done. But the Bible says it's a number without number. People, people say persecution is going to exterminate the church. Beloved, it never has. Persecution in the time of the Great Tribulation will accelerate the church. And in other places, it has. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, these are birth pains. What did I teach you about birth pains? They start early. They're not very intense. But then as the time comes closer, they get more intense and more frequent. I think that's what Jesus is saying about persecution. It will deepen in intensity until the very end of the age. Here's the last promise. But after it all, glory. Go back to your text. Verses 18, 19. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, what is that all about? That seems like a contradiction because we know earlier, it's Jesus said in the previous verse, some of you will be put to death. He's talking not only to the, the disciples, but many would be put to death in the coming tribulation time. How can that be true? Put to death in one sentence, but not a hair of your head touch the next? That's a contradiction. It's a paradox as we look at it. Well, basically, he's using a phrase that was often used in the Bible to say that you will be kept safe. How? Not physically, but personally. If they take your life, you're going to step into real life. If they take you all the way to death, you're not lost. You're not heading to hell. You're stepping into the life that you were reborn for. You won't lose a thing. So go all the way if they take you to prison. Go all the way if they take you to death and know that the real you will not perish 
Endure all the way to the end. You'll gain your life. And by the way, you're going to show that you're really His. <laughs> true believers endure true persecution. But on the other side is glory. Believers have, are reading this text today in persecuted countries. Believers will read this text in the time of the tribulation and they will take comfort like you are today. It's coming, but you're going to be ready. This is how he does it. Well, those are the four promises. That's the text. Quickly, a fast look at the times, and then a final look at your heart. How do you prepare your heart? People would say, where are we today in terms of the the persecution promises Jesus made? I couldn't possibly tell you. Are we a society that's experiencing persecution, where are we in this escalating experience of the birth pains throughout history? I don't know. I do know that I showed you the last couple weeks that birth pains increase in frequency and intensity, and Jesus said that's going to happen with spiritual deception. I gave a case from my point of view to tell you that there is more spiritual deception about who Jesus is worldwide today than has ever been in world history. So are we closer to the return of Jesus? I'm going to say yes, thank you. I made a case last week that the human upheaval, wars and, and, and kingdoms against kingdoms and earthquakes and pandemics and all the rest are, are growing in intensity. The stats seem to bear it out. Some people would say, oh, you're just headline hunting because you want to prove prophecy. I don't have to prove prophecy. I just have to teach it. You make up your own mind. When it comes to this, what about the birth pains of persecution? Are, are there increasing levels of persecution in our, in our age now compared to earlier times? Yes. The statistics are overwhelming. No other faith has the history of persecution that biblical Christianity does, and no other faith, listen to me, out of all the religions of the world, I think there was 84 last time I checked, none is persecuted at the level that biblical Christianity suffers nor has it ever been. Many places in the world today, you know this, believers in the scriptures continue to be persecuted. Muslim and Hindu-controlled countries, especially Africa and the Middle East, are especially intense in their persecution and taking many to prison and death. So the persecution scale, I told you, from soft to hard is, is swung to the very hardest level there. Communist and authoritarian states, same thing. You know this. An article in the New York Times recently said more Christians, quote, have died in this century simply for being Christians than in the first 19 centuries after the birth of Christ, end of quote. The New York Times just, just proof-texted the prophecy of Jesus. Now you say, I'm, I'm just not going there. You, you just make up your own mind. A relatively recent book called The New Persecuted Stated 70 million Christians have been martyred over history, and some people think because of the research methods he used, that number is low. Of the many millions of Christians who have been martyred, this is almost universally stated by the experts I looked at. Two-thirds of all the Christian believers who have ever died for their faith have died for it in the last hundred years. Birth pains growing in intensity and frequency that will show you that I'm coming soon. You make up your own mind. 
Are we in an age of persecution today? Yes, like never before. Fox News, a recent story, quote, Christian persecution is more prevalent and geographically dispersed than any other time in history. Approximately 215 million Christians worldwide experience very high to extreme persecution. Remember I said this goes from soft, which is social and economic, to hard, which is civil and loss of life. 215 million Christians today are worshiping under the second of the two, Fox News. You don't like Fox News? How about Newsweek? Totally on the other side. Reported January 2018, quote, the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than in any time in history. End of quote. You make the decision. Now, if all of this makes you fearful, Know that persecution, though it's unsought when it comes, listen, brings depth and life to his churches. I have seen it in my travels. I have traveled to maybe the most persecuted area of the known world today, Nigeria. I have walked with those believers and pastors, and I have seen the power and the greatness of his church I've stood where the blood flowed down the rows of the church as people were macheted to death. I've stood in the very same rows and prayed with the survivors, and I've seen mighty gospel power. It is what he does amongst his people. And you know what? He's been faithful to them, and guess what? Why wouldn't he be faithful to us? You think about that. And that brings me to a final look at our hearts. You say, if Jesus said it's coming, Pastor, I believe the text, and I want to face it, but I want to be ready, but I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm afraid. I, I'm really not sure I'm going to be able to carry that. Well, just, Jesus said, hey, don't worry. My spirit will be with you. He'll give you all you need. Back in the A.D. 60s, when Nero's persecution was starting to escalate and Paul was in his last prison experience in 2 Timothy, he'd left a younger pastor in charge of his biggest church, the church at Ephesus. The young pastor was named Timothy, and Timothy was kind of, as you probably know, a little sensitive by nature, and he struggled with fear. And Paul wrote to Timothy, and both of them knew that, that persecution has, was already rising and Timothy was going to taste it now that he was the face of that church. This is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How do you suffer for the gospel? On your own? No, by the power of God. And he said, it's coming, Timothy, and I know that you struggle, verse 7, with a spirit of fear, but God has not given you a spirit of fear, of fear but of love and of power and of self-control. You need to get ready for this, Timothy. And farther on in, 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 the, in the next chapter in 2 Timothy, he talks about that in 2 Timothy 2 and he, he talks about it again. You get ready to suffer. He says it's coming and, and I'm sure in Timothy's mind as he's reading this thing, but how, but how? And Paul knowing his young disciple by heart then goes in verses 8 through uh, 13 and he tells Timothy how. This is, I, what, I close with this, 2 Timothy 2. What's the word of God to the heart of the frightened Christian? Who knows persecution may be coming? Who is experiencing persecution? Verse 8, four things. 
Remember, number one, that Jesus is with us. He told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Don't, he said, hey, don't forget to stand for Jesus. After all, we've paid for, but remember, Jesus is with you. Risen, perfect passive in the Greek. Remember Jesus Christ. He's risen and he's alive and he's with you today, Timothy. Praise God for the resurrection. It means Jesus is in your heart and he's in your life. He's with you. Nothing gets to you that doesn't get through him first. He's saying, Timothy, remember Jesus is with you. He's risen. He's a very present help in time of trouble. Secondly, remember the gospel is worthy. He says, remember Jesus Christ, his marvelous presence, his worthy gospel. He's risen and he's with you. And I've preached it and you've preached it. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Word suffering there is present active indicative. It means Paul says, I suffer and I will continue to suffer and so will you. Suffering comes with Christ. Just remember that, believer. We don't understand that. We believe options come with Christ in our stupid Western customized society. We believe solutions come with Christ. We believe better living comes with Christ. We believe nicer friends come with Christ. We believe financial prosperity comes with Christ. We believe better options in life come from Christ. That's ridiculous. For every other Christian that comes to him in most parts of the world today, suffering comes with Christ but he's worth it because I'm saved and I'm righteous in him and I'm going to heaven and he's changed my life and I have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding and he's worthy of that. And so Paul says, listen, suffering comes with the relationship. I am suffering, present, active, indicative. I have continued to suffer and I'm going to suffer through more degrees of difficulty. Then he says, I I suffered up right now to the point I'm bound with chains as a criminal The word criminal talks about highest level offender, somebody that's the worst of the worst in the eyes of a godless world, and it's my privilege. You say, how am I going to handle that? So many people are walking away from their faith today. So many people are deconstructing their belief systems today. How do I know that I'll hold to Jesus? Listen to me. If, If to lose the gospel is to lose you, you'll hold on. You know him. You'll hold on, and he'll hold on through you. Just take it as a promise. You remember that Jesus is with you, number one. Number two, you remember the gospel is worthy. With the gospel comes suffering, but nothing comparable comes with the gospel. Thirdly, remember the Bible itself is unchained. Paul was sitting in what many people believe to be the Mamertine prison. He wasn't in luxurious accommodations anymore. He was in a hole in in, in a rock, and he was chained to a wall, and one guy was with him writing out 2 Timothy. And every time Paul gestured to make a point, the chains clanked as his arms came out from the wall, and he was chained. And he looked at this and perhaps looked at those, and he said, I'm in here, and I ain't going anywhere, and I think Nero's going to take my life this time, or whoever it was. But the Word of God isn't chained. Timothy, you've got the Word of God You go take that word. The Bible's unchanged. Alicot, the Greek commentator, said this is in the perfect passive. It means the word of God has not been and is not now chained. God's gospel will keep going. You just finish well. And then last, remember that the lost will be found. Paul says this in verse 
Verse 10, therefore, because I love this gospel, because Jesus Christ changed my life, because he's with me in presence and resurrection power, because suffering comes with that wonderful cross, but because the word of God is not bound and he's on the move, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knew there were men and women whose future eternity depended on the gospel he preached and he was going to keep faithful to that gospel until God took him because many will deny some will come and Paul knew there was fruit in it all what a marvelous thing I close and people as I began with the, the first question at the start people say is persecution coming Jesus said of course it is in our society probably arriving but then he said but I'm coming too lift up your head until then I will be with you